Hi, everyone. I'm Mackie Craven, a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in business software companies at the expansion stage and work closely with their teams to help them build large and enduring businesses. This season of Build is dedicated to a topic we've become increasingly passionate about, product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with leaders from PLG companies to find out about what it took to build and scale their businesses, advice they would give their younger selves, and some pretty fun and surprising facts along the way. Now, on with the show. This episode features Rajat Bhargava, co-founder and CEO of OV portfolio company JumpCloud. Raj shares the two things he looks for when building a new business, how product-led growth has become such a large part of their ethos, and what their growth team did to see double-digit performance enhancement on every metric they were tracking. Rajat, thank you so much for joining me today on Bill. It's been a pleasure working with you for the last several years and having you as part of the OpenView family. But for those that aren't familiar with JumpCloud, just give a little bit of context on what you're building. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. And likewise, it's been great to work with you over the last couple of years and the OpenView team. So the company basically is building the next generation of directory services. And think of directory services as the foundation of any IT organization where we're deciding who gets access to what IT resources. So an IT administrator is able to easily manage access control to systems, applications, files, networks, really anything on their network. So it's kind of the backbone of any network. Obviously, this is not your first business. You've built many businesses over the course of your career. And so why did you decide to tackle this problem and really go after JumpCloud specifically? It is. I've worked on a number of different businesses. And really, the idea for JumpCloud came when I was working on a different business, previously called StillSecure. And we were building a product that required a bunch of integration into kind of the core authentication platform or the identity provider of an organization. So we started investigating what those platforms were that people were using out there. And lo and behold, we find out that really there's one platform out there in the world. It's Microsoft Active Directory for the vast majority. We did see some other things like LDAP, which was an open source platform. But in the end, it was sort of curious to me that when we looked out across the market, there was just one platform that owned kind of the core of an IT network, which was who has access to what. And it was Microsoft Active Directory. And for me, at least, anytime there's sort of one option, one solution, or one path, it sort of makes me curious about, you know, why does that exist the way it does? So that got me kind of spun up in looking at it. And this was in the 2007, 2008 timeframe. So very early on, kind of into the cloud world where AWS and G Suite and things like that were just getting going. And so I couldn't figure it out at the time of how you could kind of have something different than Active Directory, but the idea sort of stuck with me. And then I came back around to it in the you know, 2013, 2014 timeframe. And a lot had changed by that time. You know, Google Apps had become G Suite. I think by that time, or was about to become G Suite, it was becoming incredibly popular. AWS was growing incredibly rapidly. Windows platforms weren't the only platform in town. Linux was pretty big in the data center, and Mac systems were pretty popular. So you had all these sort of fundamental changes in the IT landscape, but yet the core platform for deciding who had access to what was still very much Microsoft-centric and Microsoft-based. So that's when I started to really dig into it pretty hard and say, it feels like the time might be right to have a next-generation directory service that was really platform-neutral, provider-neutral, 
that was agnostic to cloud or on-prem or remote infrastructure. And that's sort of how the concept came about. It took a long time, but you know, it started with sort of looking at something that was, I'd say, maybe a personal need or a company need that we had when we were building something else and then just kind of stuck with me. That's a great journey. And you know, one of the things that you've had the opportunity to do that many haven't talked about is found multiple businesses. So as you go through that journey of understanding a problem, better understanding the solutions or lack thereof, what for you are the moments that make you decide, okay, this is something I actually want to go do, right? I want to roll up my sleeves and this is the problem I want to attack. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of ideas that I've looked at over the years, and most probably don't make it for one reason or another. So the choice to do something, I think, should be a pretty high bar for hopefully anybody, because that's the time that you're going to put in over the next, probably if the company's going to be reasonably successful, 7, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. So you want to pick and choose your kind of, I guess, ideas that you go work on, spend your time on really wisely. So for me, it's sort of centered in around, I guess, two major things that I try and look for at first. One is, do I feel like there's a new innovation or model or technological advancement that we can make with a product in a particular category? And then the second piece is, I think you have to have a unique business model or you've got to innovate in some way on the business model side as well. And that's a pretty broad statement because it doesn't have to be just the business model. It could be kind of the market. It could be something related to the business model, but connected enough on that side where you've got basically two innovations. I think to build a very, very big successful business, I don't think you can do it just off one of those categories. I think you have to have both. And I think both of them are probably fundamentally underpinned by really a unique insight or a set of unique insights that you have into the market, the problem space, the customer, whatever that is. And you basically are able to articulate those in a way that makes sense. It sort of hangs together and you can build a real business around it. So I'd say fundamentally, it's sort of those two things, but underpinned by having some sort of unique insight. And you know, we can talk about what jump clouds were, but that's, I think, when I look at an idea, that's sort of what I'm thinking about. And I would love to talk about what jump clouds were. You know, you started speaking a little bit about the changes in platform, right? Moving from a Microsoft-centric world to one where Google, Amazon, and others were becoming critical to business infrastructure. But would love to learn more about that and also get a sense of where you saw the business model innovation and the potential there for jump cloud. You know, on the product side, I think it was probably a little bit more straightforward, although my guess is that at that time, it was pretty hard to believe that all those innovations would actually probably take hold. So in our category, which historically was a primarily on-prem category, so Microsoft Active Directory, which basically owns 95, 98% of the market, was on-prem. And that's the way it was designed. And that's the way it was probably at that time for you know 15 years. And the fact that an identity provider hosts the core identities and passwords for an organization, people generally didn't believe that that would become a cloud category. So I'd say one of the unique insights that we had was we did fundamentally believe that we could shift the core identity provider to the cloud. And we thought we could do it in a more secure way than it was on-prem. And so that was, I would say, one of the unique insights at the time, which you know today seems pretty obvious, but at that time it wasn't. 
I'd say heterogeneity and the fact that you did have all these other platforms and providers out there. And, you know, we did fundamentally believe that it was moving away from just a Microsoft centric world. But if you looked at large scale enterprises at that time, that's not necessarily true. They weren't probably moving away, but we felt like that was going to happen. And we probably focused in on a lot of the smaller companies and we use them as sort of the indicators of what was going to happen. And I think the other probably unique insight on the technology side was that we believe that this category, which was a very deep technological product that sat on-prem that required, you know, tremendous amounts of work to integrate and work on, on-prem, we believe that you could deliver that in a SaaS model, which again, at the time was probably not so obvious, but today is probably quite obvious. And then on the business model side, I think the real thought process that we had around that was that we believe that you could take a core infrastructure category, which probably was only sold and implemented really in sort of an enterprise model, and turn that into basically what we call today product-led growth or you know, a SaaS freemium model, which again, seems sort of obvious today, but maybe not so obvious at the time when nobody had sort of seen that model. You know, anything in the category was sold in very much an enterprise scale model, not a almost consumerish model, which is where a lot of SaaS companies are today. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like that product-led growth model was one of the things you might call even a design principle for the business that came out of the insights that you had about the market and the opportunity to build a meaningful player there. As you reflect back on perhaps sort of design principles you have for the business as a whole, right? The things that you believe in and guide you as you build the company, you know, what are those? Yeah. And I think, you know, the product led model is a great one that we can look back on now. We didn't have that term when we started the business. You guys invented the term, I guess, over the last few years, but it really was sort of started with that model. And the design principle is actually more centered on who the customer was. And in our case, the customers, the IT administrator. So that person was really the centerpiece of our design for our business. So we were able to basically understand that person and understand how we thought they wanted the world to work. And, you know, how did they want to employ software? How did they want to evaluate software? How did they want to do business with a partner? How did they think about the different solutions that they were using and how they were using them, why they were using them? What were the pressures and pain points that they had? And I think the more that we studied and understood that person, I think the better that we were able to understand how to go build the business around that. So for us, I'd say the centerpiece ended up being who that customer was. I think for other companies, there can be lots of other design principles. And in our case, we kind of use that and we cascaded off of that. So, you know, one of the core things for us really centered around, we believe that the IT administrator really has to trust and believe in the products that they choose. So part of that trust is created when they're able to use the product and try the product and feel and experience the product. Our belief is that IT administrators don't love kind of the sales side of things and the marketing side of things. They actually want to believe in the product rather than say, be sold it. They want to pull it from your hands, if you will. They want to try it, love it, and then go use it. And so when you believe that that's the profile of your customer, then you build your business kind of around that. And for us, one of the pieces of that ended up being sort of this concept of 10 users free forever. And that was an ability for an IT administrator to come in, try our product, use it, find out if it worked for them, 
and it was fully featured. It wasn't cut off. There was no time frame. It's just you come in, you use it. And if you like it, you keep going with it. And if you don't like it, then you just throw it away, if you will. So for us, that's been really powerful. But I think that sort of stems from understanding who the customer really is. Absolutely. And that you know aligns with as we've reflected and looked at businesses that are customer-centric, that are thinking about bringing their solutions to market in a product-led way. The idea of delivering value before you capture value, right, or allowing your user and potentially your end customer to experience the full product before sort of ask for them in one form or another to enter into an economic relationship with the company you know, has been critical. We'd love to you know, better understand or get some of the history on how you came to that as the mechanism, sort of 10 users free forever. It's hard. At the time, we were just trying to get the product into people's hands. And, you know, I think we can look back at it now and say, oh, well, we really wanted to give more value than we wanted to take. And you kind of hope at some level that we kind of as people and as a company and as individuals kind of do that just by our nature. We hope we kind of give more than we take. So for our company, that's always been kind of a core thing and a core value of our company is building connections. And I always feel like that's kind of just another way of saying engage with other folks, give more than you take, help people out, build a bridge to your colleagues, to your customers, to your partners. So I felt like it was very natural. And you know, now we have more of a label to that, which is maybe give more than you take on the value side. And for us, the 10 users free forever was just a way for us to give that customer who we were really focused in on, which was the IT administrator, a way to experience our product. And we did sort of struggle at the time with, do you do a trial? Do you cut it off by time? Do you cut it off by functionality? Do you have it sales assisted? There are all these sort of models that we looked at. And in the end, we just kept coming back to, we believe that the customer really wants to experience and try the product themselves without sort of being forced or without being put under pressure. And so the whole concept of having a trial didn't resonate with us because we felt like it put pressure on folks and they're making a choice for a core infrastructure product. And we wanted them to have the space and the time to test it and use it, fall in love with it, and then move forward if they decided to. And so when we look back at sort of who the customer was, what they cared about related to, you know, not feeling pressured, not feeling like they were being forced into decisions, not having control over the process, which we think that the IT folks really want that control and the ability to pace themselves and look at things in the way that's right for them and for their business and their organization. That's sort of the model that we came up with. I think the other sort of driver for us around that was probably trust. And we wanted to make sure that a IT administrator who decided that this was the right product for them, that they could really trust that it was. And they had plenty of time to try it and believe in it and then build a relationship with us. Even if it was an electronic relationship, it was a way that they felt comfortable that this was the right solution for them. And in the end, that I think was a core part of our belief around, hey, we should give more than we take. And in the end, if we have a great product that's solving an important need for somebody, they're going to enter into an economic relationship because ultimately the value that we're going to provide is going to be greater than what we're taking. And obviously pricing and packaging have an impact on that. And we can talk about that as well. But I think for us, it started with this relationship of just try the product, love the product, fall in love with it, use it. If it works for you, that's great. If it doesn't, that's okay. We'd like to learn from that if it doesn't. But 
in the end, we don't want you to feel pressure. We want you to really know that this product is the right one for you before you enter into a relationship with us. Great to hear. And one thing that really struck me as you were going through is, as you talk about giving more than you take, not just being you know design principle for the product, but a core value for the company. Seeing that value instantiated, obviously, in the way that you do business, but also you know how through your price and package, and maybe even structure some of the product itself. Are there other places where you see the values or an individual value of the company impacting not just, let's say, pricing or packaging, but the way in which you develop the product? I think a core value has to just impact the company across the board. So the core value for us, one of them is really building connections. And the reason we love that value is because it sort of speaks to our product, but it also speaks to our company and who we are as people and a team and individuals. So I think if we can sort of reach out to our team and say, hey, there's a real opportunity for you to grow personally and professionally. You can build relationships. You can build your career. You can grow. That's an important part of, I think, you know, building an organization. And so it's not just building value and giving more just on the product side. I think it's in everything we do. So, you know, our hope truly with every single person that joins the company and works with us is that they're able to grow personally and professionally and hopefully financially as well. And ultimately they leave jump cloud whenever they decide to leave in the future is that they look back on that relationship and they say, you know, hopefully jump cloud gave me more than I gave them. And I was able to grow in a way that was really significant. And, you know, every person gives a tremendous amount, but I hope the company gives even more and they feel really that, they have grown tremendously. So I'd say that concept, again, like I sort of talked about it earlier, you kind of hope all of humanity kind of has that concept. It's, you know, we leave this earth a little bit better than what we found it. And, you know, it sounds trite, but it's important. I'd say you can take it to a micro of how business gets done today. I do believe that's a core part of how business gets done. But I also think it's how relationships work. And especially at our company where, you know, our hope is that we're able to grow folks. They're able to go challenge themselves and build their career to the next level. And hopefully the company provides them that opportunity. Hopefully their manager gives them more than they may be expected. And all those things, I think if you can do them, it all sort of is a nice positive cycle. I couldn't agree more. Circling back to something that you mentioned, this idea that JumpCloud was operating with a product-led growth model, but before that was a term, and certainly before some of the principles were pulled together. What does product-led growth mean to you and mean to the business? Great question. I mean, first of all, OpenView's done a tremendous job of pioneering the term and putting a label on it and then building tremendous content around it and teaching people what it really is. And I think there's been a lot of pioneers in the space that we've been able to learn from, which is great. And OpenView's kind of cataloged all that, brought it all together and been a lighthouse for that, which is awesome. But I think product-led growth for us I don't think we had a label for it at the time. It was all about just put the product in people's hands, make it as frictionless as possible for them to experience it. Let's not hassle them. Let's give them all the functionality. Don't sort of shortchange people. Just give them the opportunity to use the product, love the product. And then if they decide that it's right for them, they'll move forward with an economic relationship with you. And so it really was about for us just making sure that the product is easy to get into folks' hands. They're able to implement it, test it, use it across their organization. 
even, you know, let's say in a somewhat limited capacity because it's only 10 users. But for many people, that's plenty big enough for them to be able to try it, understand it, and know that it's the right fit. So, you know, as it relates to PLG, I'd say it's all the things that OpenView talks about, which is related to making little friction when you sign up, getting people onboarded and implemented as quickly as possible, tracking sort of what's working, what's not, iterating on those things to make it much easier for people to experience the product and the value that the product has. In a sense, all the things that we do around the experiments of how to make our conversions go up across the board, it's really sort of driven by show people more value, get people to understand the product in a way that's better than we might have otherwise done. And if you can do that, then people will see the value and they'll convert into the next stage of the funnel or whatever it happens to be. But ultimately, we view it as an experiment for the end customer. They view it as an easier, more friction-free experience for them to unlock the value of the product. You know, as you brought this idea up of experiments and experimentation, you know, one of the things that we've observed product-led companies like JumpCloud have the opportunity to do, given that so much of the early user and customer interaction is directly with the product and with the value that's delivered, is to build systems of experimentation to continually improve the experience and deliver more value for the end user and customer. And as a result, obviously look for them to be more engaged and ultimately more excited about working with any business that does this over the long term. Would love to hear a little bit more about how you've approached that and how you think about experimentation at JumpCloud. Yep, it's another great topic and one that we're really passionate about. So we've done a few different things, but I'd say the number one thing that we've done over the last few years is build what we call a growth team. And that growth team has instrumented a big part of our product, of our funnel on the marketing side. So we're trying to understand what is it that folks that come in to use our platform are trying to do. And ultimately, we run it as experiments, but for an end user, they don't experience it as an experiment. And so I view our experiments that are being run by this growth team as basically a way to unlock what that user is trying to do and being able to deduce what it is their goals are in a purely electronic form. I mean, we're not talking to our customer at that point in time they're speaking to us through the product. And so what we're trying to do through the product is basically get them to see the value that they want to see as quickly as possible. So you try and run as many experiments to figure out how do you understand what they're trying to do, where they're trying to get to, what their goals are, what their ambitions are, what their network environment might look like, and what the hopes are for the product. And you're trying to do that in a way without talking to them, making it as frictionless as possible for them but yet they're able to go unlock that value very quickly. So that growth team is essentially taking a look at tremendous amounts of data and telemetry that we have from even before they've entered into our product to understand what is this person trying to accomplish. And if we can figure out what they're trying to accomplish, perhaps we can give them the right journey through the product that unlocks that value for them as quickly as possible. So to us, that's what that's looked like with a growth team has been to unlock that value through data and telemetry systems and a lot of analysis of those different variables. 
That's great to hear. And and I think for those that are, you know, sort of more familiar or trying to set these teams up themselves, it's, you know, great to know that, you know, those are having success doing it and understand the framework and how you think about it for your end users. For those that might be a little bit farther from it or are just trying to understand what experimentation or ability really to unlock additional user value really means, would you be able to give an example of one where, you know, you didn't expect the result that you'd seen or one perhaps where you had high conviction and were clearly able to you know, enhance the value that the end user and customers were able to receive? I can give you one on each side of the spectrum. So I think it's actually pretty interesting. We have these beliefs on what you think the experiment will result in. And of course, the reason it's an experiment is because you don't know. But you have a hypothesis, you have a guess, you have a belief on what it could look like. And one I would say that has basically fallen flat for us was we completely changed our signup flow. So we asked a fair number of questions on our signup page for a variety of reasons. But you know, generally, the best practice is you don't ask a tremendous number of questions. You let people into the platform pretty easily and friction-free without trying to grab too much information. And so we said, okay, well, we'll try to reduce the amount of information that we're trying to capture or we'll capture it over time. And we thought that, of course, this is going to have a massive uplift because that's what sort of conventional wisdom says. You know, just ask as few things on the signup page as possible and you get, you know, a higher conversion rate. And that totally didn't happen for us. So it was very much the existing signup page that we had was better. We tried a couple of different flows. And then in the end, we said, we're not sure why people are good with the original signup page, but that's the one that won through our experimentation, which was you know, quite a surprise for our team. I'd say the other end of the spectrum of one that we were excited about, maybe didn't know how much of an impact it would have, but it turned out to have a massive impact for our customers and for our users was a very simple, basic checklist of how to get started with our platform. So directory services can be a very overwhelming, daunting category of platform. It is sort of the core backbone of any IT infrastructure. So There's a lot of different things to connect and hook up and make sure that you've got implemented properly before you can kind of see everything. And so what we wanted to do was just sort of shorten that up, make it much easier for people to see value right away and get started and feel comfortable in the platform. And so we created a checklist and that checklist had double digit performance enhancements on almost every single metric that we were tracking against it, which in the growth world is generally kind of massive, massive win. I mean, you don't usually get those kind of improvements, but I guess you could say that we had a long way to go. So that ended up being a really big winner for us. And then there's lots of offshoots of that that we've since then done. And those have been pretty successful. I mean, I think in growth over time, you're hoping for, you know, tenths of a percentage point or a percentage point or two improvements in various metrics. And those are usually pretty good wins. And this one happened to be kind of a massive win for us. So you get both sides of it and it's tough to tell which one's going to be a winner and which one's not. But again, in the end, you're trying to look at it with the lens of how do I make this experience for our potential customer or for a user much better? How do we get them to where they want to go as fast as possible with as little work on their end as possible? But yet they're able to walk away saying, I get it. I see the value in this and it could be helpful to me. Or you want to get them to say, hey, this isn't the right thing for me. And we didn't waste their time. We were able to get them to that conclusion quickly. And hopefully 
they walk away saying, oh, well, you know, at least I figured it out very quickly. You know, when I'm ready for it, I'll come back to it. As you reflect on what you've learned in the Jump Cloud experience, and you think back to a piece of advice that you'd give yourself before beginning the Jump Cloud journey that you almost certainly wouldn't have listened to at that point in time, what would that have been? It's a tough question. I guess if you wouldn't have listened to it at the beginning, and my guess is that you wouldn't listen to it now if you went back, right? That's sort of the question. I'd say that the thing for us was probably investing more heavily in the go-to-market motion. So I think Larry, my co-founder, and I were pretty rational folks. And so we were reticent to invest super heavily into sales and marketing in the go-to-market motion until we felt like the product was really ready, the market was there. And my guess is that if you would have told us, hey, the business is going to grow pretty quickly, so you should invest in this earlier, it would have been very tough for you to get a different response for us at that time. Although you should have gotten a different response from us. But that one's a tough one. I'd say that's a good example of one where, you know, you don't want to invest too early in that platform because it's very expensive. And by the way, we're trying to do a PLG model. So the piece of that is that you don't want to invest as much in sales and marketing because the product's doing a lot of the heavy lifting. But in our category, at least, you still need a lot of resources on the sales and marketing side. So I'd say that's probably one of the areas where we probably could have invested much, much earlier than we did, but we didn't. And now we are. But I'd say even if you told us that before we started the business, pretty sure we wouldn't have listened, but we probably should have. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And frankly, you know, you were obviously coming to the table, both of you, with a fair amount of experience in what it takes to not just get a company off the ground, but build something with substantial and enduring value. So as you said, I think you would have done what you've done. And I think we're all incredibly excited with where you are today and where the company is headed from here. It sort of things happen for a reason. And, you know, for us, I think those investments were the right investments over time. And, you know, could it have gone faster? I think it could have gone faster, but it's gone plenty fast for us. And, you know, we've had a lot of help from folks like you and other people. So that's been great. But, you know, you always look back at things of what could you have done better, what you could have done differently. Why did you take the path that you took and trying to really understand it and help the next time you look at those set of circumstances that, you know, you're in a better position to make an even better decision. And sometimes that happens. Other times you don't learn from it and it takes a little bit more, let's say, going through the pain. (laughs) But, you know, you hope you learn from different situations all the time. Absolutely. I mean, taking a step back. You know, one thing I always love to do is learn something uh, interesting and surprising and and sort of dive into something unusual toward the end. You know, one thing you and I were chatting about is what's a fictional place that you'd love to visit? You know, the technologist in me really sort of said the whole, you know, Black Panther movie, Wakanda, that would be kind of a fun place to visit because of how technologically advanced they are and the things that they were working on and the innovations. I don't know. I think it would be super interesting to be walking around that place trying to learn all the really cool technology that was being built. I think for me too, sort of the geek and scientist has come out a little bit. I think about the Star Trek universe, perhaps around next generation, where you know it's a society that sounds like it'd be wonderful to be a part of with sort of discoveries about the universe coming through daily as a self-described curiosity junkie i sort of can't imagine something more interesting or exciting or a place to be to have that much learning and, and that much opportunity there it would be incredible yeah that would be pretty cool one too i mean that's the beauty of that part of the world of making movies and you know creating fictional places is that 
you know, people can see a lot of themselves in different situations. And, you know, that's kind of interesting. It kind of opens up our mind to other things that maybe we wouldn't have thought of. Absolutely. Well, Rajat, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Build today. And I can't wait to continue the conversation here soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to Build on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite purveyor of podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's read by over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Also, while you're there, check out new content daily on our blog. Until next time, 